Hey everybody, I'm Jazz. And I'm Molly. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Wild Wicked World. you guys hello 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 and we're back a little bit later than you guys expected but uh we're still getting over some sicknesses and stuff here uh i'm starting to get better but now jazz is getting it yeah i sounded like crap last week so we canceled our recording last week because uh it was not good (laughs) molly sounded like a total different person i I still kind of sound weird i was about to say i could hear it too (laughs) yeah So, yeah, we've got some going around. Everybody, our job and stuff is Mm -hmm. sick. It's just nasty germs going around and stuff. Now she's trying to get me. And guess whose birthday was yesterday? Miss Jazzle Dazzle. That's going to be my new one. Jazzle Dazzle. Jazzle Razzle Dazzle. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. Razzle Dazzle Jazzle. I finally finally turned 22. Yeah, that's what she said to me yesterday morning. I'm like, you fucking wish. (laughs) No, definitely 28. I got, I'm getting a shirt. I'm going to get one for Tish, too, man, Tish. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it says, I'm 42, and then plus, and it has a, a finger flipping off. Uh-huh. So I'm going to get one for me and Tish. You guys are the same age, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's older than me. A month by a month. <laughs> yeah, let that yeah. be known. She's older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She turns 43 a month before I do. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I'm going to get her and uh, me that shirt so we can wear them. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. 42 plus fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> And then on St. Patrick's Day at work, I'm going to wear uh, a shirt that it says it in Gaelic, but it says kiss my arse. But nobody's going to know unless oh, they ask me what yeah. it says. Oh, yeah. Don't forget. You said you have that uh, with the Kermit the Frog or whatever. Oh, yeah. I got that flag to give her. Drink That's it. That's right. Pink Whitney. Yeah, yeah. Oh, remind me before you leave. I'll give that to you. Because we love Pink Well, I love Pink Whitney. She loves Pink Whitney. Yeah. <laughs> Last time I drank Pink Whitney, I think I ended up puking. Yeah. So. I went out yesterday. We had a, a bartender in. Oh, like I feel like I always say this when I'm drinking. But like she was just good. Like She knew how to make a drink. I was like, ooh, I keep them coming girl <laughs> i'm like you and i like my dad's girlfriend she came with us because that's my dog <laughs> and um and she's like sitting at the bar drinking with me and you know she's she's a lightweight because she doesn't like you know drink and i was like you want you want another one you want another one here it's on me you want another one but you were being a freaking bad like yeah. the devil on the shoulder like it's my birthday because nikki and dance came too those are my sisters and um Des can't drink because she's pregnant again. Okay. And Nikki, you know, since she doesn't drink as much and she's our de- designated driver, so, you know. So I was like, well, come on. Like, who's going to sit at this bar? Somebody's going to have to drink with me. Yeah, so, like, Des and Nikki went off and then, like, me and Nisha were, like, at the bar. And then... I already told Molly this, but like some weird guy like just came up to me. He's like sitting next to me. We talked for hours and he was uh, giving me money. So I was like, oh, okay. Like Jackson's always this mean so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. It's true. It's always some old white guy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows I need a sugar daddy. Sugar daddy in your life. 
He was he like his he probably that's probably he was probably looking for a sugar baby. He was like, I don't know. I think he just needed to talk because he was like, Yeah, I got family drama. I'm still like, oh yeah, like what oh my what's God. going on, man? Talk to me about it. What's going Let's on? Yeah. It. He was like, he's like, Are you sure it's your birthday? I'm like, dude, yes, like it's it's my birthday. Like <laughs> but he was very nice and like he like we were taking pictures and he's like in the background in the photo. I bet you thought he was nice, all that money he was giving me. He, sure <laughs> nice. he he was teaching me how to play like I think it was blackjack or something he was because we were at the casino he was teaching me i think it was blackjack he was teaching me. my uh my sister and her boyfriend they like to go mm-hmm. to the casino a lot what was that did you hear that noise in the background yeah there? i was kind of like a the refrigerators i think it might have been the ice maker oh you do have an ice maker yeah i know that's not rotel dip but I see yeah we're to the game tomorrow oh yeah <laughs> we're oh for all you cheap haters <laughs> yeah that's right we haven't recorded something because you know the chiefs once again are in the super bowl <laughs> once again we love to be hated yes we do because you know guys know how much we love our Kansas city uh-huh. chiefs because that's our hometown team and uh, yeah, you know, 49ers and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl tomorrow. I'm Rematch. excited. Yeah, and that was the our Super Bowl, our first one we won. You know, not the first one, but yeah, with Mahomes, first one we won in many, many, many years. So many. many and now, many. what? This is the fourth time we've been to the Super Bowl in the last five years. Yep. yep. So yeah, people are gonna love to hate us. Uh, we're okay too spoiled. <laughs> no, we don't know how to live. We don't know how to even act when we. I used to. I grew up with a, a team that sucked my whole life, so I'm sure the fuck am enjoying a, a winning team now. We we less loyal fans have yeah. have deserved this. <laughs> the fact that we've stayed loyal all these years, this is what finally paid off, and now we finally have a, the team to beat. So. Yeah, I just I, I just we need this win for the sake of my insanity. Well, especially with the way the season went, we did not look like a good team, and it's like as soon as the postseason yeah. started, we looked like a good team. It's like okay, and when it matters, we showed up. So. Surprise! We still got it. Yeah. So we're gonna get into. I'm just gonna talk. It's a really small, odd true crime story, and I think it's actually something I might look at more into. (laughs) And this is called the Pizza Killers, aka Thomas Potskovich and Jason Vreeland. This happened in 1997. Uh, New Jersey teens Koskovich and Vreeland were just 18 and 19 years old, respectively. And they killed two randomly chosen pizza delivery men, Giorgio Galara and Jeremy Giordano. Delivermen were lured to an abandoned house in a remote location and violently shot to death multiple times in their car. So they didn't even let them come up to the door to deliver it. According to law enforcement at the time, the teen's motivation was that they just wanted to see what it would be like to kill somebody. Oh, what is going on with the teenagers back in the day? Yeah, I mean, well, no, teenagers still do stupid shit like this nowadays. I remember the Tide Pods for Contempt Challenge thing. I yeah. mean, they really do, do stupid shit, too. But that has taken it to the another level as far as yeah. you just want to know what it is to kill somebody. So you pick some random innocent person, you know, like, I don't know. It's just and now And kids. now you better find out what it's like to be uh, in prison. Yes. <laughs> now, you. I hope you enjoyed that, that murder there because now you've done ruined the rest of your life. <laughs> You're not going to be a free man. We all know what goes down to prison. Well, and especially because they were 18 and 19, so they were adults. Mm-hmm. So they got tried as adults. So Good. Yeah. Which, like I said, I wanted to look more into that. That was just kind of a small little tidbit of it. Might so. get a full episode. <laughs> Maybe. I found a couple other things while I was looking for an on crime story. I'm like, ooh, I've never heard that. I'm going to look into that one. <laughs> so if I haven't heard of it, that's 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 crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of true crime out there, though. 
All right, then. Jazz, what time is it? Molly, it's time to fuck around and find out. So this week, you guys, we're going to talk about Jody Arias. And it happened not too, too long ago, so a lot of you might kind of be somewhat familiar with the story. This bitch was one of those. It, she was like that, that <laughs> psycho girlfriend that all men are afraid of. Like that psycho <laughs> girl that y'all are like, oh, but the the sex is so good, you know, like, but she's just psycho. Well, this is the this is the girl that you need to worry out for. You, you know what phrase gets me? They're like, oh, my God, like, she, yeah, she's so crazy. She might mess around and kill me. Like those type of phrases have always been funny to me because it's mm-hmm. like you like you're you're saying it jokingly, but yeah, you, in the back of your mind you're thinking it, and then you got this case right here, and like she took it to that whole new level there. So she murdered her boyfriend, uh, well, kind of on and off again boyfriend Travis Alexander, and it's pretty crazy because there's actual like pictures of uh, that like she took and she tried to hide the evidence and stuff which we'll get in more to that later in the story but uh she tried to hide the evidence but it got found <laughs> like the <laughs> pictures and stuff like the card but you know they were able to save it and there's a very eerie picture of him that was they you know pretty sure it was right before he was murdered and just to me it's even eerier than actual death pictures because it was like it's like that you know that last picture it was almost like you could see it in his eyes like i don't know it really creeps me out that picture yes it's like in some photos you can actually see like the like you think that they know like he's looking at like i don't know you just have to it's almost like maybe she already had like a knife or gun in her hand or something i mean i don't know but because before the pictures before that he was just kind of posing and, Uh and whatever and I don't know. It's they, they they took a lot of pictures of each other, like doing their thing. They were some freaks. So. Oh, okay. And he was a Mormon. <laughs> so on June fourth, two thousand and eight, Travis Alexander, a salesman, was killed at his home in Mesa, Arizona. His murder and the subsequent criminal trial have received widespread media attention. Alexander's injuries consisted of multiple oh goodness, excuse me, multiple stab wounds, a slit throat. And a shot to the head. The medical examiner ruled his death a homicide. Yeah, I think so. Definitely overkill. Most people, I mean, it has happened, but most people don't slit their own throats. <laughs> Jody Arias, Alexander's ex-girlfriend, was charged with his murder, and her trial began on January 2nd, 2013. Arias testified that she killed Alexander in self-defense. She was found guilty of first-degree murder on May 8th, 2013. So we'll get more into that, you know, the background of that. So Travis Victor Alexander was born on July 28, 1977 in Riverside, California. After his father's death, Alexander and his siblings were taken in by their paternal grandmother, Norma Jean Preston, Alexander Sarby, who eventually introduced him to the Church of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, you know, that's the Mormon religion. Mm-hmm. Alexander was a salesman for the multi-level marketing company Prepaid Legal Services. He also worked as a motivational speaker. Jody and Arias was born on July 9th, 1980 in Salinas, California. So she's only like a year older than me. She and Alexander met in September 2006 at a Prepaid Legal Services conference located in Las Vegas, Nevada. On November 26, 2006, Arias was baptized into the Latter-day Saint faith by Alexander. As of February 2nd, 2007, Alexander and Arias were a couple. After the two broke up on June 29, 2007, 
Arias moved to Mesa, Arizona until April 2008, at which time she moved to her grandparents' house in Eureka, California. Eureka, I guess. Dang, she all over the place. Yeah. So Alexander's body was discovered in a shower at his home. His throat had been cut as well as he had been shot in the head and stabbed multiple times. There have been conflicting reports over the number of stab wounds, with some reports stating 29, many stating 27. And after the verdict, more than 20. Maricopa County Medical Examiner Dr. Kevin Korn testified that Alexander's jugular vein, uh, jugular vein, common cauteroid artery, and windpipe had been slashed. Alexander's hands also had defensive wounds. Korn further testified that Alexander may have been dead at the time the gunshot was inflicted. Alexander's death was ruled a homicide. <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah. Alexander had scheduled a trip to Cancun, Mexico. He had also missed an important conference call on the night of June 4th, 2008 at 7 p.m. On June 9th, having been unable to reach Alexander, people from prepaid legal services went to his home to check on him. His roommate said he was out of town. After some searching, they found a key to Alexander's master bedroom. When they entered it, they noticed large pools of blood in the hallway leading to the master bathroom where his body was discovered in the shower. The 911 call they made notified authorities of the discovery mentioned an ex-girlfriend, Arias, who Alexander said was stalking him, hacking into his Facebook account and slashing tires. <laughs> so she was already fucking crazy. <laughs> On May 28, 2008, a burglary occurred at the residence of Arias's grandparents, with whom she was living in Eureka, California. A 25 caliber gun and other objects were taken. The grandparents' gun was never recovered. The prosecutor argued that the burglary was staged by Arias and the stolen gun was used to shoot Alexander. So the prosecutor was definitely trying to, you know, this was premeditated mm-hmm. type thing. Because, you know, they were thinking the defense would probably make it out to where self-defense, like where she was trying to go for, and like it was spur of the moment, like, you know, self-defense. Uh-uh. Slashing tires proves it all. Well, not even just that. The fact if she staged this robbery of this gun, you know, that means that there was something thought of before. Mm-hmm. Several days before the trip, Arias reportedly contacted her ex-boyfriend, Daryl Brewer, asking to borrow two five-gallon gas cans for a trip to Arizona. The cans were not returned to Brewer. Receipts presented at trial also showed that Arias had purchased a third five-gallon gas can sunblock and facial cleanser from walmart in salinas california on june 3rd 2008 that evening at an arco gas station in pasadena california she purchased 8.3 gallons of gasoline which her debit mastercard and four minutes later purchased 959 gallons of gas with cash mastercard was used again on june 6 2008 three times at a tessero gas station in salt lake city at a pilot Flying J Travel Center in Winnemucca, Nevada, and a 7-Eleven in Sparks, Nevada. So first thing I have to say is she thinks she's smart with the gas cans and things <laughs> like that to try to, you know, but you're using your card to totally give a, a paper trip. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like, come on. You're not that smart, obviously. I can see I can see what she's doing here, but it's not smart. Yeah. After Alexander's death, but before his body was discovered, Arias had continued to call him and had left him several voicemail messages. It was later alleged that she had accessed Alexander's voicemail messages after his death. 
She said that Alexander had originally planned to visit her in May 2008, but that his plans had changed. On June 2nd, 2008, Arias rented a white Ford Focus in Redding, California, about 100 miles south of her residence. She told the budget rent-a-car staff that she would only be driving the car locally, but when the car was returned on June 7th, it had been driven about 2,800 miles. It was also missing all of its floor mats, and there were what looked like Kool-Aid stains on the front and rear seats. The car was cleaned before police were able to examine it. A spent 25 caliber round was located near one of the sinks in the master bath. Alexander's damaged digital camera was located in the downstairs washing machine. So she put it in the washing machine trying to... <laughs> the camera was new. Detective Flores, via phone interview with Arias, asked her if she knew a possible motive for why someone would want to damage Alexander's camera. Although images had been deleted, Mesa police were able to recover the images. The recovered images included Arias and Alexander both in sexually suggestive poses at approximately 1.40 p.m. on June 4, 2008. The last photo of Alexander alive and in the shower was taken at 5.29 p.m. on June 4. Moments later, images appear of an individual believed to be Alexander profusely bleeding on the floor. A bloody palm print was located in the bathroom hallway, which DNA revealed to be a mixture of Arias and Alexander's DNA. Arias continued to insist that she had last seen Alexander on April of 2008, despite being presented with DNA and photographic evidence by Detective Esteban Flores. Ryan Burns and others who met Arias in Utah after the killing indicated she had bandages on her hands and she wore long sleeves on days when it was very hot. She told different stories about how she received the cuts to her hands. Burns was told they were from an injury while working at Margaritaville restaurant. At the trial, it was revealed by Siskoyoy County, California authorities that no such restaurant exists, nor ever existed in the area. At the time of the killing, she worked at Casa Ramos in Iraq. <laughs> so she really is a dumb fucking bitch. She didn't focus on her story at all. Um, I mean, these are fucking detectives, dude. Do you think you're going to outsmart them with your lies? On June 5th, 2008, West Jordan, Utah police officer Michael Galetti pulled Arias over while she was in the rented vehicle driving to a meeting with Burns. The front license plate of the car was missing and the rear plate was upside down. Arias attributed this to some kid at a Starbucks playing a trick on her. Burns helped Arias fix the license plate, and Galetti did not cite her for infraction. So they pulled over this pretty girl and stuff, and they just let her go. Because they're like, aw, you poor kid. How mad was the, the car rental place when she returned that car? Oh, shit. Arias was indicted by a grand jury on a first-degree murder charge on July 9, 2008, and arrested at her grandparents' home on July 15, 2008. She was extradited to Arizona on September 5th, 2008, where she pled not guilty on September 11th, 2008, to my sister's birthday. <laughs> Arias gave three different accounts of her whereabouts. She originally told police she had not been in the home at the time of Alexander's death. She later told police that two intruders had broken into Alexander's home and that they murdered him and attacked her. Finally, she stated that she killed Alexander in self-defense and she was a victim of domestic violence. So, yeah, because at this point, they're going to believe your story. It's your third story. First, you weren't there. 
Then it was some weird freaking fabricated story. Like, it's so stupid. If you watch some of the documentaries, like, they, they, she said that they, they, they argued. It was two people. They like argued about killing her or not. So, I mean, it's just so <laughs> stupid. It's like you know, if you're gonna lie, you tr- you're supposed to keep it simple. Yeah. You know, like don't tell some elaborate freaking thing. Like, oh man, yeah. And then now her third story is you know, it's tr- well the pictures before showed two people in sexual positions uh-huh. and stuff that doesn't really prove domestic violence. It's in the slightest. <laughs> so. In March of 2009, because of expressed concern about possible violation of victims' rights by holding ex parte mitigation status conferences, it was ordered that the appointed mitigation master was relieved of further duties, with limited exceptions. In May 2009, the court could not determine whether IQ testing and or competency screening had been previously ordered, so it was ordered that areas submit to IQ testing. That she should be tested for competence. Yeah, I, would, I, would, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> In August of 2009, Victoria Washington and Kirk Nurmi were appointed as defense counsel, replacing Mar- Maria Schaefer in September 2009. A defense motion to extend the last day beyond March 3, 2010 was denied. But in November of 2009, another motion was granted after the state did not file a response and the last day was set to August 31st, 2010. In April of 2010, a motion to disqualify the Maricopa County Attorney's Office was denied. In December of 2010, after a rule of the Arizona Rules of Criminal Procedure was amended, changing the last day in capital cases from 18 to 24 months from arraignment, the state sought the death penalty. In January of 2011, a defense filing detailed the efforts Arias' attorney went to obtain text messages and email. Initially, the prosecution told the defense attorneys that there were no available text messages sent or received by Alexander, and then was ordered to turn over several hundred. Mesa Police Detective Esteban Flores told defense attorneys that there was nothing out of the ordinary among Alexander's emails. About 8,000 were turned over to the defense in June of 2010. In March of 2011, the court ruled that the Office of the Public Defender did not have unilateral authority to dismantle the defense team. Um, how do they decide like what case is going to be a death penalty or not? Um, I mean, they take a lot of things into consideration. I mean, it, it, the premeditation, like you're not going to get a conviction on a death penalty mm-hmm. unless you can prove that, you know, there was some premeditation and the brutality of it. I mean, every state, it varies state to state, to be honest, you know, even if the state has the death penalty in the first place, but even then, states that have the death penalty, it varies. So, I mean, it's always up to the prosecution what they want to go for and charge for, and they'll do that based on what kind of a case they have, and if they think they can get it. So, they had clear-cut evidence, they're like, but sure, death penalty. I mean, I, I don't, okay. I do believe in the death penalty, but I only believe in the death penalty for very extreme cases, yeah. like serial killers and things like that. I'm not saying that she, she deserves to spend her life in prison, I feel like, but I don't think that she deserves the murder plea for this. In yeah. fact, I think that's a cop-out for most people. Somebody like this deserves to spend their life in cap- captivity mm-hmm. to, to you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it starts with an R. Uh, 
receive redemption. I think, mm-hmm. I don't know the word, you know, just to, it'd be easy just to be killed for it. Yeah, you know? I agree. So, but I mean, I do believe that a lot of like, these brutal serial killers and stuff like that just aren't to be, I mean, some people yeah. just don't deserve to be breathing the air that the rest of us breathe. I think if you're going to get the death penalty out, that they have to at least do like, we got 20 years, you know, in prison and then kill them. That way they can. Well, suffer. a lot of times they do nowadays. I mean, there's they freaking have all these pills and shit. I mean, they they spend a lot of time in prison before they actually uh-huh. get put to death. With the exception of like the you know the the dude the Oklahoma City bomber, mm-hmm. I've never seen somebody be killed so. Quickly. Hey, yo, they, they were. That's why up. everybody thinks that he was some sort of a patsy. Like there was more to it because yeah. it's like wow, the justice system really worked fast mm-hmm. for him. Like wow, uh, that's else. <laughs> Interesting. I thought yeah, that was pretty quick. Yeah, but. uh Anyway, yeah. So the trial commit. We were talking about jury selection. Uh, me, Brandy, and Tish the other day because uh-huh. Brandy has jury duty coming up this month, and I was like, "Well, just tell them this and this, and they, you know, just make <laughs> yeah. them know you're not a biased person. You know, you can't be biased, and yeah. you won't have to." I was like, "I wonder how you get in these murder trials and stuff." I was like, "God, I'd love that." <laughs> I was thinking that, that. that would be the reason why I wouldn't be able to make the jury. Yeah. Because I'd be like, yeah, I have a true kind of podcast. Uh, yeah, you're no good. Yeah. I, I, was, I would love to sit in a, like a trial like that. Oh, man. I mean, I would be biased. And that's the thing. Just because I have a true crime podcast doesn't mean that. I feel like that makes me more of a yeah, person that would know. sit there and want to listen to all the facts and make sure that you're convicting the right person, you know? So my grandpa, go, when he can see it, my grandpa goes, he's just like, oh, yeah, my daughter, she's a dispatcher. Like, all right, head out. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. So the trial commenced on December 10th of 2012 in Maricopa County. Superior Court Judge before Judge Sherry K. Stevens. During jury selection on December 20th, Arias' defense attorneys argued that the prosecution was systematically excluding women and African Americans. Prosecutor Juan Martinez said that race and sex were irrelevant to his decisions to strike certain jurors. Judge Stevens ruled that the prosecution had shown no bias in the jury selection. Defense attorneys are always grasping at the stupidest straws, aren't they? Like, like how the hell did you get this? You're a racist, and you're a racist, and you're a racist too. It's always yeah, it's always that or self defense. Like that's like that's all they got. They're they're crazy, or they it was self defense. Yeah, or they don't remember anything. Yeah, it's a blackout. <laughs> yeah, like come on now. I think eventually, I think that's what her story changes to, too, is that she doesn't remember anything. In opening arguments on January 2nd, 2013, Prosecutor Juan Martinez sought the death penalty. Arias was represented by appointed counsel L. Kirk Nervy and Jennifer Wilmot, who argued that Alexander's death was a justifiable homicide committed in self-defense. A man testified that Arias visited him in Utah on June 5th and that she told him she had cut her hands on broken glass while working at a restaurant card called Margaritaville. A detective testified no restaurant by that name had ever existed in the Eureka area. At the time, Arias was working at a restaurant called Casa Romas. Later, Arias testified that after she cut her finger, I had a bazillion margaritas to make. (laughs) The prosecution argued that since a 25 caliber round was found near Alexander's body and a week before a gun of the same caliber went missing during a burglary of the Rekka's home, when Arias, Arias lived with her grandparents, she had staged the burglary and used the gun to kill Alexander. 
Argus took the stand in her own defense on February 4th, 2013, testifying for a total of 18 days. She took the stand for 18 fucking days, dude. The sheer length of time Arias spent on the stand was described by criminal defense attorney Mark Garagos in a report compiled by the Associated Press, Crimesider staff, as unprecedented. Unprecedented. On the first day of her 18th day testimony, she told of being violently abused by her parents beginning when she was approximately seven years old. Arias testified that she rented a car in Reading because a budget website gave her two options one to the north and one to the south, and her brother lived in red. On her second day on the stand, Aria said that her, their sex life included oral sex and anal sex. She said that anal sex was painful for her the first time they experienced it together, and that while she considered oral sex and anal sex to be real sex, Alexander did not, and he believed these forms of sexual activity, in contrast to vaginal sex, were technically not against Mormon rules. She said they eventually had vaginal sex, but less often. The phone sex tape was played in which Alexander said he wanted to zip tie her to a tree while she was dressed as Little Red Riding Hood. She testified that Alexander secretly found young boys and girls sexually attractive, and she tried to help him with these urges. Well, I mean, he wanted lots of anal sex. Mommy, you got bigger things to worry about. Arias testified that her relationship with Alexander became increasingly physically and emotionally abusive. That's not just a Mormon thing, too. Though. That that's a Catholic thing. Like the Catholic uh-huh. girls used to always just they'd let them do them on their butt because they would believe that they still stayed a virgin. What? Yeah. Yeah. I swear, dude. I grew up in Catholic school. Oh, I know. <laughs> not not no personally, but <laughs> I know these things. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So Arias testified that her relationship with Alexander became increasingly physically and emotionally abusive, some of which caused Travis's sister to continuously roll her eyes and shake her head in disbelief. Arias said that Alexander shook her while saying, I'm fucking sick of you, then began screaming at me, after which the body slammed me after which he body slammed me on the floor at the foot of his bed, and taunting her, saying, Don't act like that hurts. Before, he called her a bitch and kicked her in the ribs. Afterward, Arias said he went to kick me again, and I put my hand out. Arias held up her left hand in the courtroom, showing that her ring finger was crooked. According to Arias, the dysfunction of their relationship reached its climax when she killed Alexander in self-defense, after he became enraged following a day of sex and and, and a gun accident, forcing her to fight for her life. This was the third different account of how Alexander's death had occurred that Arias had offered police, which both prosecutors and observers felt severely damaged Arias' credibility as witness. A sentiment later echoed by, echoed by jurors upon the completion of the guilt phase. Arias addressed comments she made in a September 2008 television interview that had been played earlier in the trial. In the interview, she had said, No jury is going to convict me because I am innocent. You can mark my words on that. (laughs) Discussing the statement during her testimony, Arias said, At the time, I had plans to commit suicide, so I was extremely confident that no jury would convict me because I didn't expect any of you to be here. At the close of his cross-examination of Arias, Martinez replayed the video and prompted Arias to affirm that she had said during what she had said during the interview that she would not be convicted because she was innocent. 
At the end of the guilt phase, the jury's foreman, William Savakos, expressed an opinion common to both jury members and courtroom observers when he told ABC's Good Morning America that Arias' testimony didn't do her any good. I think 18 days hurt her. I think she was not a good witness. Yeah, no yeah. shit, man. Starting March 14th, psychologist Richard Samuels testified for the defense for nearly six days. He said Arias was likely suffering from acute stress at the time of the killing, sending her body into a fight-or-flight mode to defend herself, which caused her brain to stop retaining memory. In response to a juror question asking whether the scenario could occur even if it was a premeditated murder as the prosecution continued, he responded, Is it possible? Yes. It is probable. No. Samuels also diagnosed Arias with post-traumatic stress disorder. Prosecutor Juan Martinez attacked Samuel's credibility, accusing him of forming a relationship with Arias and being biased. Samuels had previously testified he had compassion for Arias. Beginning on March 26, Alcy LaViolette, a psychotherapist who specializes in domestic violence, testified that Arias was a victim of domestic abuse and that most victims don't tell anyone about abuse because they feel ashamed and humiliated. La Violette summarized emails from Alexander's close friends. They have basically advised Miss Arias to move on from the relationship, that Mr. Alexander has been abusive to women. Wow. The jury posed nearly 160 questions to La Violette, many of them focusing on Arias' credibility. Okay, now I'm not saying that this guy wasn't abusive towards her because it's very well possible that mm-hmm. they were both abusive towards each other. And, I mean, if his friends are saying that she should move on because he's been abusive in the past, he probably was abusive towards her. But she was the one that kept going back to him. So she couldn't, she had a choice to stay away from him. She chose to continue to go and back and be with him. So, I I mean, I've been abused, too. And as much as I would have loved to see something very bad happen to the people that abused me. Uh I mean, I I wasn't going to do it myself. It was just something I could fantasize about in my brain, you know? So you have a choice. You move on. You move on with your life. You heal yourself from the abuse that you dealt with. You don't go and kill the person. So I don't believe for a second with self-defense. I never have. Yeah, I don't either. Clinical psychologist Janine DeMarte testified for the prosecution that Arias did not suffer from PTSD or amnesia and that she found no evidence Alexander had abused Arias. Instead, DeMarte said Arias suffered from borderline personality disorder. Huh? There it is. <laughs> That's it. Showing signs of immaturity and an unstable sense of identity. People who suffer from such a disorder have a terrified feeling of being abandoned by others. Uh... Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> On April 24th, in response to previous testimony given by Arias about be- buying a five-gallon gas can from a Walmart store in Salinas, California, on June 3rd, 2008, that she returned on the same day, the prosecution called Amanda Webb, a Walmart employee from the only Walmart in Salinas, to the stand. The employee said she had reviewed all the records for that store for June 3rd, 2008, and found no return of a five-gallon gas can. While there was a record of such a can being sold on that date, there was no record of any gas can return subsequently for over a week, according to Ms. Webb. The final defense witness was psychologist Dr. Robert Geffner, who said that DeMarte's borderline diagnosis was not appropriate, and that all tests taken by Arias since her arrest pointed toward an anxiety disorder stemming from trauma. 
He also said the test indicated that she answered questions honestly without lying. Following Kepner's testimony, the state recalled Dr. Horn, who testified further on the gunshot wound and called Dr. Hill Hayes, forensic neuropsychologist, who disputed Geffner's testimony that the MMPI test was not geared toward diagnosing borderline personality disorder, concluding a long day in court. Ooh, um, so I was I'm reading this book on drama right now, and this made me think of it. And he makes a good point. Like, why are psychologists and stuff even allowed to be like expert witnesses in the courtroom? Mm-hmm. Because the defense and prosecution always has their own and stuff. They always contradict each other. And a lot of times uh, they'll have multiple people on their side that contradict each other. Yeah. So it's it's not an exact science whatsoever. Not like DNA can be now to where you can exactly narrow down. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you just have basically their opinions on how they practice their Mm-hmm. psychotherapy or whatever. And they're all saying different stuff. So, I mean, it's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because you do need to have some sort of a knowing what mentally is going on with people. But it's like, I just, I don't know. Like, it just, psychologists are just, ugh. <laughs> they never agree with each other. Yeah, never. they don't. Yeah. So, I'm, uh, Mom, in closing arguments. Yeah. yeah. In closing argu- uh, arguments on May 4th, Arias' defense argued that the premeditation theory didn't make sense. What happened in that moment in time, the relationship, the relationship of chaos that ended in chaos as well. There is nothing about what happened on June 4th in that bathroom that looks planned. Couldn't it also be that after everything they went through in that relationship that she simply snapped? Ultimately, if Miss Arias is guilty of any crime at all, it is the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. In rebuttal, Prosecutor Martinez described the extent and variety of Alexander's wounds. There is no evidence that he ever laid a hand on her, ever. Nothing indicates that this is anything less than a slaughter. There was no way to piece this woman who just wouldn't leave him alone. Arias' 18-day testimony added added to the very long defense portion of the guilt phase of the trial, which led to problems with retention of jury members. On April 3rd, a member of the jury was dismissed for misconduct. The defense team asked for a mistrial, which the judge denied. On April 12th, another juror was excused for health reasons. A third juror was dismissed on April 25th after being arrested for a DUI offense. (laughs) On May 8th, 2013, after 15 hours of deliberation, Arias was found guilty of first-degree murder. Out of 12 jurors, five jurors found her guilt of first-degree premeditated murder, murder, and seven jurors found her guilty of both first-degree premeditated murder and felony murder. As the guilty verdict was read, Arias struggled to repress tears as Alexander's family smiled and hugged each other. Several people who had gathered outside the courtroom began celebrating by cheering and chanting. (laughs) Following the first-degree murder conviction, the prosecution was required to convince the jury that the murder was cruel, heinous, or depraved, in order for them to determine that Arias was eligible for the death penalty. The aggravation phase of the trial started on March 15, 2013. The only witness was the medical examiner who performed the autopsy. Arias' attorneys, who repeatedly asked to step down from the case, gave only brief opening statements and closing arguments, in which they said the adrenaline rushing through Alexander's body may have prevented him from feeling much pain during his death. Prosecutor Martinez showed photos of the corpse and crime scene to the jury, then paused for two minutes of silence to illustrate how long he said it took 
for Alexander to die at Arius's hands. After less than three hours of consideration, the jury determined that Arius was eligible for the death penalty. So the penalty phase began on May 16, 2013, when prosecutors called Alexander's family members to offer victim impact statements in an effort to convince the jury that Arius's crime merited a death sentence. On May 21, 2013, Arius offered an allocution, during which she pleaded for a life sentence. Arius acknowledged that her plea for life was a reversal of remarks that she made to TV reporter shortly after her conviction, when she said she preferred the death penalty. Each time I said that, I meant it, but I lacked perspective. Until very recently, I could not imagine standing before you and asking you to give me life. She said she changed her mind to avoid bringing more pain to members of her family who were in the courtroom. At one point, she held up a white t-shirt with the word survivor written across it, telling the jurors that she would sell the clothing and donate all proceeds to victims of domestic abuse. She also said she would donate her hair to Locks of Love while in prison and had already done so three times while in jail. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, you're slow. You're just making up for it. Trying to play victim. That evening, in a joint jailhouse interview with the Arizona Republic, 12 News, and NBC's Today Show, Arias said she didn't know whether the jury would come back with life or death. Whatever they come back with, I will have to deal with it. I have no other choice. Regarding the verdict, she said, it felt like a huge sense of unreality. I felt betrayed, actually, by the jury. I was hoping they would see things for what they are. It felt really awful for my family and what they were thinking. What about his family? Yeah. What about about his family? (laughs) On May 23rd, 2013, the sentencing phase of her trial resulted in a hung jury prompting the judge to declare a mistrial for that phase. After the mistrial was declared, the jury discharged the jury foreman, stated that he believed Arias was mentally abused that had not been enough to excuse her crime. He also said, I think 18 days hurt her. I think she was not a good witness. We're charged with presuming innocence, right? But she was on the stand for so long. There were so many contradicting stories. He said the jury found the responsibility of weighing the death sentence overwhelming, but were horrified when their efforts ended in a mistrial. By the end of it, we were mentally and emotionally exhausted. I think we were horrified when we found out that they had actually called a mistrial and we felt like we had failed. Well, I mean, I agree that you can't, like, if you're going to be sentencing somebody to death, that, mm-hmm. that's going to be a heavy weight on you. Like, yeah. On May 30th, Kairapoa County Attorney <clears throat> Bill Montgomery discussed the next step at a news conference. He said he was confident an impartial jury could be seated but it was possible that lawyers and the victim's families could agree to scrap the trial in favor of a life sentence with no parole. Arias had said, I don't think there is an untainted jury pool anywhere in the world right now. That's what it feels like. But I still believe in the system to a degree, so we'll just go through that if that happens. Defense attorneys responded, if uh, the diagnosis made the state's psychologist is correct, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office is seeking to impose the death penalty upon a mentally ill woman who has no prior criminal history. It is not incumbent upon Mrs. Arias' defense counsel to resolve this case. But as of April 25th, 2013, defense costs had reached almost $1.7 million paid by taxpayers. The penalty phase of the trial is ongoing. A tweet sent on Arias' behalf indicated she may be considering a plea deal. On October 22, 2013, Arias filed a motion requesting that Nermi be replaced as her lead counsel. Arias met with the prosecution to discuss a settlement on October 24, 2013. 
All right. So that's about it on the main facts for the Jody Arias thing. So, I mean, there's a couple more things. There's a lot of media on it. We're going to post a lot of pictures. Um, of course, check out the X page because that, that'll have the... the Murder pictures and they're they're pretty gruesome and they're all available on this uh, website here, Jazz. So you'll even get all those. Oh yeah, Definitely I mean they got close ups better. of the slit throat and everything. It's that's yeah, crazy. Like she's over here smiling. Like I know. I mean, that's, that's that thing. What I'm talking about. <laughs> Whatever you are too. You're the one that has to look at all that stuff. I can't imagine this shit you come across. I, I'd be like, oh my gosh. I need to go to church today. Yeah. That's Bible study day. That's why That's why she does that part because she's the one that prays to Jesus more. So. I did. I was talking to my pastor one day about it. He was like, how's the podcast going? I said, like, yeah, it's going really good. We actually love it. I said, yeah, but some of these things I come across is just crazy. He's like, yeah, I bet. Uh, it really is. It really is. So, if you guys would like to contact us, you can do so at 3wpodcast2022 at gmo.com. Uh, make sure that you follow our TikTok and Instagram, both at 3wpodcast. Make sure to like that Facebook and join the discussion group, and those both are at Wild Wicked World. Don't forget that X page, formerly known as Twitter, and that is under 3wpodcast2022. Oop, I did that one wrong. <laughs> All right, guys, let's not murder our lovers. I feel like I've said that before. Just be decent humans. Okay. Bye-bye now. Now a little about our first ever sponsor, helping us to get this show a-going. Let's move KC. Not only is this a family-owned business by my cousin Morgan and her husband Brett, my oldest son also worked for them the summer after he graduated high school. With over 20 years of professional moving and storage experience, they are proud to be a family-owned and operated business right here in the KC metro area. Their services range anywhere from local moving to interstate moving, Packing and unpacking, one item or whole household and storage is available upon request. They offer specially moving services as well. Piano, baby grand, grand upright and spine, safes, hot tubs, or any other unique thing you may have. They are fully insured and offer additional insurance upon request. Their main goal is to make sure you feel comfortable and safe in a stressful time like moving by handling your personal stuff like it was their own. Whatever you need, Whatever your need is, they can make it happen. So if you're about to move, and this goes for any of our listeners in any states, they are a moving service for any size in any state. Check them out at letsmovekcmovers.com or check them out on Facebook under the name Let's Move KC.